If you look into the literature in 1980s, 1990s, most people thought India will have a much better opportunity than China because they have the so-called institution which will be conducive to sustainable growth in the country. Constitution, the, the democracy, and a free press, and all those things, right? But now, the per capita GDP in India is only 20% of China. You are listening to In Pursuit of Development with Dan Bannock. My guest this week is Justin Yufu Lin, the former chief economist of the World Bank. He is one of China's leading economists and has worked extensively on the industrialization policies of rapidly developing countries. Justin is currently the Dean of the Institute of New Structural Economics at Peking University. At the same university, he's also the Dean of the Institute of South-South Cooperation and Development and Professor and Honorary Dean of the National School of Development. Justin and I discussed his experience of being the first non-Western Chief Economist of the World Bank, the role of Bretton Woods institutions in promoting global development, China's experience of achieving fast economic growth and eradicating extreme poverty, what worked and did not work in India, and the key conclusions from his book, Beating the Odds, Jump-Starting Developing Countries. I hope you enjoy our conversation. It's lovely to see you after so many years, Justin. Um, you know, it's been a while since I met you last. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for the invitation. And uh, me too. I miss you and uh, I miss Oslo. And I'm so <laughs> delighted that in spite of the pandemic with the modern technology, we can talk almost like in person. Indeed. So, so Justin, let's begin with the World Bank. Now, you were the chief economist there, 2008 to 2012. And I remember having several conversations with you during that period. And of course, if you move to the current period, there being criticism about the doing business report and the data manipulation, some say. Some people are calling for changes to the way in which the heads of the World Bank and the IMF are appointed. Going back to the time that you were chief economist, Justin, what was it like then? What were your experiences of being, you know, such a senior person in the World Bank? Did you feel that it was a position that allowed you to undertake radical change and reform for global development? First, I think it's an honor for me to be the first chief economist and a senior vice president from the developing world. As you know, the World Bank is a very prestigious multilateral development institution. And in the past, the chief economist has been from well-respected development economists from the developed world. 
and I was the first one to be given the position from a developing country. So certainly it's an honor. And secondly, the World Bank and other Bretton Woods institutions, I think their missions are respectable. Just like the World Bank, when we enter the gate of the main building, there's a motto that is world free of poverty. That's correct. And just like you and me and many other colleagues, that has been our dream. That has been something motivated us to work hard, a world free of poverty. I'm very much impressed by my colleagues at the World Bank. I think they have the same dream, they have the same drives, try to contribute to the development in the low-income country and help them to eradicate the poverty. And many of them should have opportunities for other positions in the private sectors or in the universities and so on, or even in the government. But certainly I think that the motivation is good and all the intentions are there, but there's still such a long way to go before we can really achieve this dream of a world free of poverty. And certainly I hope I can make a contribution. So how was that experience, Justin, to be a non-Westerner holding the chief economist position? Did you feel you had to, to work extra hard? Did you have to prove yourself even more? What, what was it like? I had proved, you know, proven myself as a good economist. Otherwise, I will not be <laughs> right. you know, offering that position, right? Yeah. So I think it's not for me to prove my capability and so on. But certainly, I like to bring something to the debate, to the thinking, and to the program there. Because the goal is clear, to you know, help the developing country to have a dynamic economic growth, so you can raise the income and you can help eliminate poverty. The mission is clear. But if you look the experiences, or if you look at the result, you see they're still so far away from what we want to achieve. And the statistics show, you know, after the Second World War, so many countries in the developing world gained political independence and started their modernization drive and with support from the World Bank and other multilateral development institutions. But we know that when I arrived at the World Bank, 2008, there were only two low-income economies to be able to reach high-income status. One is South Korea, and the second one was Taiwan, China, where I was born, right? And also we know that in 1960s, there were 101 middle-income economies in the world. But by the time when I was the chief economist, only 13 of them were able to be dipped to the high-income status. And among those eight, those 13, eight were European countries surrounding Western Europe, like Portugal, Spain, Greece. Their income gap with the allowance economy was small to begin with, or oil-producing countries. The other five were Japan, 
Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Singapore. So that means in spite of so much efforts being put into by the developing economies and the country themselves, with the help like the World Bank and so on, the majority of the countries in the world have been trapped in low-income status or middle-income status. So certainly we need to reflect. We need to have a rethinking. Why our intention is there. And we work hard, but we cannot achieve the goal. And so I like to bring those kind of rethinking based on my own experiences and my reflection and to have a little bit of debate and hopefully to be able to you know, bring something new to the program at the World Bank. I was thinking about your book, Beating the Odds, Jumpstarting Developing Countries, that you wrote with Celestine Monga. And I think what you just said has a bit to do with that, right? So yep. in many ways, a lot of countries that are experiencing rapid economic growth, they're doing it differently from, from uh, the rich world. That's very true. Right? In terms of you know what is considered in mainstream economics as being important. So in terms of, say, infrastructure and institutions. Yep. And so in this book, of course, you and Celestine Monga, you outline an agenda for beating the odds. Why don't you share with our listeners some of the main findings, Justin, from that book? What is it that countries should be doing to beat the odds? What can one learn from the East Asian example, from the Chinese example? In April of this year, of course, China published this, uh, the State Council published a very important white paper announcing the eradication of extreme poverty. And we've uh, discussed this. I've had numerous conversations with Chinese colleagues. And everybody, of course, wants to learn from the Chinese experience. But if we could begin first by outlining some general perspectives on how countries, in your view, can beat the odds. I think the first one, we need to have the confidence. Poverty is not a destiny. Possibility is something can be eliminated. And every country has the opportunity to become prosperous. And that confidence is very important. Otherwise, people will think poverty is a destiny. And under that kind of situation, they will not you know, motivate themselves to find a way to improve. And I have that confidence because I personally experienced the change from extremely poor situation to a dynamic, prosperous situation. I mentioned I was born in Taiwan in 1952, and it was post-war, post-colonial economy, extremely poor. When I was young, I can still remember how poor we were. I could never ask my mother whether we have lunch or not. And I went home and uh, very often I had to touch the stove. If it was warm, that means we had lunch to eat. If it was cold, that means we do not have lunch. Okay, that was the situation in Taiwan when I was young. But when I left Taiwan in 1979, Taiwan has been a newly industrialized and a very dynamic growing economy. And I went to mainland China in 1979. Again, it was extremely poor. And uh, like the World Bank statistics shows, in 1979, 1978, 
the per capita GDP in mainland China was 156 US dollars. And you know, sub-Saharan African countries average was 490 US dollars. So the mainland China, the average per capita GDP was less than one third. And I certainly, I, can, I could see poverty almost everywhere. And the dream of the people at the time was, was to have a bicycle, a sewing machine, and also a watch. It was considered luxurious goods for almost everyone in mainland China at the time. But again, in spite of this humble starting point, and in the past 42 years, the mainland part of China completely transformed. And most likely by the time of 2025, the per capita GDP in China will cross the threshold of 14,535 US dollars to become a high income economy. And you know that so far, only 18% of the population in the world live in high income country. And by the time of 2025, most likely the percentage of people living in high income country will be double because the population in China is about a little bit more than 18% of the world population. So from where I was born and from where I'm working, I have been experienced this great transformation from a situation has been trapped in poverty for centuries and to have such dramatic changes in less than one generation in my lifetime. And so I think that, you know, to change from poverty to prosperity is possible. We need to have that confidence, but certainly we need to understand why most countries has been trapped in poverty, like Taiwan, China, like mainland China for centuries. And we also need to understand what are the things to make this change that feasible. Whenever one talks about any successful development intervention, the first example that I think about is, of course, poverty reduction in China. I mean, that is something unprecedented. No other country has achieved that kind of you know, lifting so many hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. And whenever I've spoken to my friends in China, including Li Xiaoyin, you know, my good friend, scholar on poverty reduction, he, of course, often cites the role, the crucial role of agriculture. As most of my Chinese friends say, it's a step-by-step process. So on the one hand, of course, since 1978, which in a way corresponds to the time when you moved to mainland China, that's when poverty, actually the, the process of halving poverty in the first seven years of the reform period started, right? So you had agricultural growth that was healthy and you had almost 90% of the population that was engaged in agriculture. And I've also been told that another driving force, particularly since 1986, has been rural industries. And I know that you've been working on structural transformation, et cetera, so I'd like to hear your views on this. And the role of town and village enterprises has been crucial. And then one final driving force since 
1995 is this massive influx of foreign direct investments, right? So that has, again, spurred this rapid economic growth. Those were the three sort of very broad issues that I have learned from my Chinese colleagues. Now, if you were to reflect on this, Justin, what would you highlight? Do you agree with these three sort of step-by-step process? Are there other things that took place? I think that on the surface, you are right. You observe those kind of changes. But if you go to any low-income country, the majority of the people live in agriculture, right? So agriculture is everywhere. And how come the agriculture in China can be a basis for income growth? And if you talk about the rural industrializations, every country knows industrialization is important. But how come the industrialization in China can be successful. But in other countries, the attempt to have industrialization encounter all kinds of setbacks. And certainly China also benefit a lot from foreign direct investment. But as you know, in other countries, the foreign direct investment very often destroy their economy and, and uh, taken away the jobs from their own industry and so on. So I think, yes, you see those kind of changes. And, uh, but there's something behind that to tell the difference between success and the values. I think that certainly in terms of poverty eradication, we know that poor people, the most important source of their income is their own labor force. And certainly if they live on agriculture, land is also important. But how to make the land produce something with higher value, how to make land produce something that can bring higher income to the people. That is important. Otherwise, if you only talk about agriculture, all the poor people, the majority of poor people live on agriculture. And this brings me to something my mentor at the Chicago, the T.W. Schultz said, you need to have modern technology to increase the productivity of agriculture. And uh, if you can bring in modern technology to agriculture, then the peasants can turn sands into gold. That's one thing. But certainly technology is important, which is understandable. However, it'll be good to the low-income part of the world. Sometimes farmers, they you know, would not adopt modern technology. And very openly that modern technology requires infrastructure irrigation and also the fertilizers and also the access to the markets and supported by the credit because you need to buy the modern inputs and so on. And so if you want to make the agricultural productivity to improve, you need to have other conditions that to be working together with the modern technologies. Otherwise, modern technology alone will not work. You also need to provide incentive to the farmers and so on. And for that, we can see that starting from 1978, the change from the collective farming to household-based farming that improves the incentive. But at the same time, the agricultural infrastructure has been improved, like irrigation and new varieties like the modern varieties and hybrid rice, hybrid corn, those kind of seeds are provided through the national research, agricultural research institutions, and also 
the improvement of the access to the market and so on. Those help to lift the farmer's income. But we also know if a country stay in agriculture due to the low income elasticities, farmer produce more, the upper price may drops, farmer may not gain more. And so on the one hand, it might be possible to rely on international markets to you know, help. But most importantly, you need to have an industrialization process to shift the farmers to shift their force from agriculture to non-agricultures. And if you can have this kind of changes, the labor force in agriculture will be reduced. And that's on the one hand, certainly that will mitigate the agricultural output a little bit, but at the same time, the commercial demands for agricultural product will increase. Because once farmers become the workers in manufacturing sectors, they do not work on agriculture, but they still need to eat, right? They still need to have food supply, right? And that will increase the agricultural demand. And that can maintain the agricultural prices. But at the same time, you know that the labor productivity in the manufacturing sectors in general is higher than the labor productivity in the non-agricultural sectors. That's one thing. And also the potential to continuously improve the labor productivity in the manufacturing sectors, the scope is much larger than in the agriculture because you can start from very labor-intensive industries to a little bit more capital-intensive and, uh, and then technological-intensive industries. And so you have many layers to crime, to crime and uh, to continue to improve labor productivity through income. And this also is very important. And, and so industrialization should come in. But as I mentioned, in the past, many countries also want to have the industrialization as a way for modernization, but they fail. To make industrialization to be successful, the first one you need to go into the sector of which the countries, the country you know, has competitive advantages because only the sectors the country has competitive advantages, then the factor cost of production can be competitive. But we know not only the factor cost of production, and if you want to compete on the market, it's a total cost of competition, including transaction cost. Transaction cost very much depends on the infrastructure and also other institutions. So you also need to improve the infrastructure and the, and the institutions. But we know that the enterprises, they cannot improve the infrastructure by themselves or institution by themselves. So in that regard, you need to develop your economy according to your competitive advantages and with a facilitation state to help the enterprises to overcome market failures or bottlenecks in infrastructure and institutions. And in this process, if foreign direct investment is in line to come to the sector which the country has competitive advantages, then it helps. You know, I think the uh, the concept of the facilitating state is really interesting in this context. And Justin, I'm thinking about what Amartya said and others have often highlighted that 
Unlike what some people think that a lot of what has um, worked in China is not necessarily just because of rapid economic growth. In fact, there were certain investments that had taken place in the country that were aimed at promoting long-term human development well before the country started experiencing growth. So we're talking about doctors and nurses in rural areas, education, all of this took place also before 1978, so that in many ways the investments were there. And when, when growth took place, you know, the country could build on those initial investments, so, which brings me to this idea of the facilitating state, Justin. And then I think you're right that a lot of other countries are in the same situation. A lot of other countries are relying on agriculture. Why is it that China did you know, achieve this in a very different way from many others. And so here, of course, some would say it is the kind of stability that the party offers, the long-term vision, the absence of some of the challenges that typical democracies face in terms of shifts in government and the kind of short-term policy cycle that comes with changing government. So what is your idea of the facilitating state and what is the role that the party has played or the political system in China? How important has that been? I think the policy stability certainly is crucial. If this policy works, then you need to stick to the policy. Otherwise, you know, good policy will be replaced by the bad policies. And uh, very often, and uh, the political stability can facilitate the policy stabilities. The most successful African country, Mauritius. Mauritius is also very successful. The per capita GDP in Mauritius is currently higher than the per capita GDP in China. But in the 1960s, when James Malice was invited to do a country study about the prospect for the future growth of Mauritius. The diagnosis was Mauritius has no hope because Mauritius did not have any condition which are considered as important for a successful country in 1960s. It was a tiny island economy far away from any major markets and it was our economy dominated by plantations, sugar plantations. And they also had the import substitution strategies with all kinds of distortions. They have a democracy, a multi-party democracy, and a government change from time to time. And so it was considered as a country without any hope. But now the per capita GDP in Mauritius is exceeding 10,000 US dollars. And so, yes, if you look into the East Asian economies, they tend to have political stability and they are successful. And sometimes people will say, well, to have a one party political system is a precondition for success. But at the same time, we look into some other failing state. They also have one party. And the party also been in power for decades, but they were not successful. So from this kind of comparison, I think to have a good policy is more important. And what do I mean by good policy? In general, a policy which can help the economy to 
exploit their competitive advantages with the government facilitation. And if you and maintain the economic stability in the transition, if we can do that, any economy can be successful. And if this policy is successful, even the government is replaced by another party, they also want to be successful, right? They will continue with these policies. Certainly in the literature, we talk a lot about the policy stability, but very often those kind of policy stability cannot be achieved because the policy would not work. Because, you know, like in our book, Beating the Us, you have the X theories and recommends all kinds of policies. And those kind of policy, you know, with great intention to remove you know, the perceived bottleneck for the growth. But the issue is that even you implement those kind of policy changes, it limited that the so-called bottlenecks, there's no growth, there's no job. And then the new government and the, the, the incumbent government, since its performance was poor, it cannot deliver, very often the government will be replaced. And when the new government comes in, what's the motivation for them to maintain those kind of policy which been implemented and which does not work? Because you were saying earlier about, you know, how in China, it is not just the focus on agriculture, but the, the facilitating state yep. creating incentives for the farmers. In a similar way, you could say that there has to be enough incentives also for political leaders to pursue good policies. That's you very know? true. Because sometimes, sometimes you just um, you have a government that that comes to power, a party that comes to power and may discontinue a policy that worked well because that is associated with a previous government. So you want to create you know, your own legacy, put your own stamp. And so I think the kind of incentives that are available for political parties, for leaders is important. And I'm thinking about you know, the East Asian example, the success stories. And one of the things that always is interesting in the literature is the India-China comparison, right? So two countries that start development, same time, 47, 48, 49. And of course, the one defining characteristic is, of course, the political system. But there may be other issues. And Martin Ravelion and others have been highlighting the fact that whereas China actually focused on rural areas, India's strategy was a bit different. It pursued a bit of everything, industrialization, agriculture. China had a one-sided sort of focus on agriculture before it industrialized. So I wonder whether you could reflect a bit on the Indian experience. We all come to India, I'd like to come back to the issue of the legacy. Certainly, every politician, statesman, national leaders, wants to have a legacy. They like to be remembered as a hero of their nation. But they also want to stay in power. And their goal to stay in power is the number one. If they cannot stay in power, there's no meaning or legacy. It's impossible to have a legacy. How can you stay in power? You need to be supported. And how to be supported by the majority of people? If you can bring job, prosperity, people will be supported. Those kind of policies, which you can create job, which you can and you know, contribute to the dynamic economic growth. The need there, the new leader comes in, will not change those kind of policy. Because if 
the new leaders change those kind of policies, job will be reduced, growth will be slowing down, and then he will step down. And it's impossible for him to stay in power and he will not have a legacy. If you go to the Mauritius, as I mentioned, they change government from time to time. But those kind of policy can help them to have dynamic economic growth. And those kind of policy can help them to create exports. As I mentioned, Malaysia started with a tiny island economy with import substitution strategies. And at that time, there were no job for the majority of people. But in 1971, they started to set up one export processing zone and to attract the foreign direct investment from Hong Kong and Taiwan to bring the you know, textile and garment industries to Mauritius and uh, to utilize that their abundant supply of, at that time, low-wage workers, and also to create export earning for the country. And that kind of policy works. And everyone knows that if you change that kind of policy, you're not going to be supported by the people. You've had those kind of good policies and uh, demonstrate the policy can really meet the demand of the people in terms of job, income, and the continuous growth. Those kind of policy will not change. And secondly, coming to the comparison of China and India. Well, I think that uh, the comparison is very interesting because in 1978, the per capita GDP in India was about 30% higher than China, uh, 50% or 30% higher than China, because China per capita GDP was 156 US dollars and India 204, so about one third higher than China. And if you look into the literature in 1980s, 1990s, most people thought India will have a much better opportunity than China because they have the so-called, the institution which will be conducive to sustainable growth in the country, the so-called the constitution, the, the democracy and the free press and all those things, right? But now the per capita GDP in India is only 20% of China. And what makes the difference? I think that the first one that reflects what we started our conversation, China certainly introduced the agricultural reform to improve the incentive. But India's agriculture has been private farming to begin with. China bring the household farming and uh, to pay the importance of incentive to the farmers. India has been there always, right? But how come that India cannot have a very dynamic growth in agriculture? I think the government did not provide modern priorities. The government does not provide the extension of the modern agriculture. The government does not improve the irrigations. If you do not do that, certainly the agriculture cannot you know, be a driver of the growth. That's one thing. And secondly, India did not work to make the transformation from an agrarian economy to modern manufacturing economy possible. As I mentioned, if only you know, bring modernization to agriculture, it will not make the country to have a dynamic growth. It's very important in this process to bring the dynamic structural transformation from agriculture 
to the manufacturing. And China did that. You know, not only the, the rural township enterprises, China introduced the export processing zone, the spatial economic zone, the industrial parks, and to improve the infrastructure and the business environment for the new investment from domestic sources and from foreign direct investment. And all those kinds of sectors you know, were consistent with China's comparative advantages. They are labor intensive. They can generate a large number of job opportunities so they can attract the farmers to move from agricultural work to manufacturing work. And since they were consistent with China's comparative advantages and with the improvement in the infrastructure and so on, they become very competitive internationally. And so China turned into a, a force in the export. And if you look, the export growth in China has been much faster than the GDP growth. Now China's GDP growth in the past 42 years was 9.2%, but export growth has been 15% per year on the average. And all those changes are very important because as I, I, I mentioned, and you also mentioned at the beginning, the process of continuous raising income is a process of continuous structure transformation in the technology and also in the transformation from agriculture to non-agriculture. And in the process, a very important thing is to make this kind of changes along the line of your competitive advantages in a market economy with a facilitation state. And I think that India did not do that. India did not bring modern, modern technology to rural areas and uh, without you know, making the condition that, uh, of you know, application of modern technology. And India also did not really develop the labor-intensive manufacturing sectors. You know, when I was at the World Bank, there was a debate about the parts of modernization. And uh, one path people pointing to India, rely on the information technology and IT technology, service development, oriented development. The other one was manufacturing based development. And for some time people think that, well, IT information services might be better than manufacturing. But I think that now people recognize and uh, if you look into the population size, India and China are about the same. China now 1.4 billion, India 1.39 billion, right? About the same size. But if you look into the jobs, China in the manufacturing sectors generates, generates 125 million jobs. India information services generates 2 million jobs. Certainly those 2 million jobs, their income, is much higher than the manufacturing job in China, but only 2 million jobs. And if you look into India, the total number in the manufacturing job is only 10 million, less than one tenth. And I think that's here the difference. And so gradually, I think now people understand, certainly if you have good opportunity in information sectors, you need to you know, grasp that opportunity, but do not neglect the importance of manufacturing because that will be the main part 
up jobs for a developing country. Justin, a final set of issues that we can discuss is something that, of course, you've also been writing a lot about, as many others, the impact of the pandemic and some of the worries all over the world in terms of all the success in terms of development that was achieved, you know, before the pandemic. Those have many, say, in many parts of the world been reversed. There are concerns about not just growth, but also the kind of investments that really are required in the health sector. Some people are talking about major investments at a global level, the provision of global public goods, that we need to reform, rethink aid, aid as conventional aid is not going to do, you know, in the future. Again, things that you've written about. So I'd like you to please reflect for our listeners a bit on, you know, the future of world development, the future of global development, some of the challenges you think China is facing, because there has been concern about that growth is maybe tapering off in China. And of course, if China stagflates, then this could have serious repercussions all over the world. So what are your thoughts in terms of both challenges and opportunities for development within China and the kind of repercussions and the consequences this may have for other parts of the world, including the African continent? Well, it's a big question. I always ask big questions. (laughs) (laughs) You know that. (laughs) That's right, too. Yeah, I think that uh, for the pandemic, that's a lesson we need to learn. No matter how much progress we have met, we are fragile to unexpected challenges. Pandemic is a lesson, it's a precaution for maybe other bigger challenges like climate changes and so on. So we need to be humble. And then secondly, for the pandemic and other global challenges, you know, it's very important to have global corporations because no matter how well one country do, we cannot claim the victory unless all the countries have been successful in contain or mitigate the risk like the pandemic. Because for example, pandemic, the virus mutation is so fast. Unless we help all the countries to eliminate the pandemic. Otherwise, we are still under the threat. But unfortunately, this time we see when our human beings are facing these global challenges, the global, the spirit of cooperation has been under challenges. Most countries only look at their own people within their own borders. And without giving support to the low-income country, and the people talk about apartheid, about the vaccinations, right? And in your country, in Western Europe, the other one's country, the vaccination has been exceeding 60%, 70%, or 80% of their population. But if you go to African country, less than 5%. In some country, less than 1%, right? Without that, without really help African country to really have fully vaccination, 
we cannot claim the victory. And similarly to the climate changes. So we need to work together and we need to rely on, we need to have a confidence and we need to have a mechanism to increase the confidence of corporations. That's one lesson we learned. Otherwise, the challenges will be there all the time. And so the pandemic is just one warning for us. Secondly, China was hit by the first, but China luckily to have a very effective governance. And so it was under, it has been under control in the first quarters of 2020s. And basically in terms of the life, we can return to basically return to normal. But as I said, without the total victory in the world, China still need to be precautious. And any precaution certainly has a cost. So in terms of our export, in terms of our import, and, and in terms of our production and so on. But fundamentally, I think that China is in a better position because it's under control. Life has been you know, basically turned to normal and uh, I do have a confidence we will continue to grow, although may not be as fast as without the pandemic. But I think that China will be able to contribute about 30% to the global growth like China did since 2008. And China was continuing to be the driver of the growth in the world. And I think at this time, growth is very important for not only China, but for other countries. Because without growth, it will be hard to generate the jobs to meet the demand of the young people, right? Will that growth be sustainable development, you know, given the concerns about the climate? Do you think China will be impacted in terms of, let's say, you know, going over, transitioning to renewable energy, shutting down coal plants? Don't you think that is all going to impact the kind of growth that China is going to expect in the years ahead? Uh, certainly. You know, first, China is committed to the green, the, the climate change, and China pledged to pick the carbon emission by the time of 2030, and to have to reach carbon neutral by the time of 2060s. And uh, so it's a very ambitious progress for uh, a country still on the catching up industrialization process. But China is committed to, to that. And uh, so, the way is not to stop the growth. The way is to make the growth green. And how to make the growth green, you need to have a new technology, green technology, wind power, solar powers, and to some extent also nuclear power and to replace the coal power. And China now has been ambitious on that and you know, new technologies. But in the transition process, certainly, you know, we need to pay some cost. Just like in the last two months, many provinces, they shut down the factory for a whole week in order to cap the energy consumption and to reduce emission. And with that, certainly there are some costs on the growth. But yes, it's a challenge, but sometimes it's an opportunity because we understand green will be the way to cope with the challenges, and that become a new area for our investment in terms of technological innovation investment, and also to adopt the adoption 
uh, the green technology to replace the old technology is also an investment. So yes, it is a challenge, but at the same time, it's an opportunity. And since China is a large country, once we have the breakthrough in the technologies and with a large application domestically, we can make those kind of technology very affordable, not only within China, but also in the world. So China you know, now become a source of green technology, like a solar panel, like the, the, the windmill and so on, and export those kind of technology to other countries. But here, certainly, we need to concern about low-income countries in Africa and other countries. And for that, I agree that we need to have this kind of common and differentiated responsibilities. That means because climate change is a result of accumulation of the CO2. But most of the CO2 were emitted by the industrialized high-income country after the industrial revolution. So it's a common challenge to the humanity. But those who which emitted more historically need to pay more. So we need to agree, we need to honor the promise in the, in the, in the global forums to contribute the fund for the mitigation and adoption of mitigation of the climate changes, adoption of green technology, and to support the low-income country to adopt this new technology. Otherwise, without a structural transformation, without move from agriculture to manufacturing, they cannot generate jobs for their young people. They cannot raise the income for their own population. And without that, they cannot have political stabilities. But if they want to have this kind of industrialization process without green technology, then emission will be increased. And it will be a contradiction to the need to cap the emission. And the only way is to help them to adopt the new technology to have green industrialization. But the cost need to be shared by the advanced country and the developing country. If we understand it's a true global challenges and we need to work together and to contribute each one to do shares, I think we still have the opportunity to cap the increase of the temperature within two degrees. Otherwise, either the low-income country will be deprived with the opportunity for that development, or we are going to face and a risk much larger than the COVID-19. Justin, it was so fun to see you again. Thank you so much for coming on my show today. It's a great pleasure. And certainly I hope to see you, not only virtually, but also in person very soon. If you enjoyed this podcast, please spread the news among your friends and share it on social media. The Twitter handle for this podcast is Global Dev Pod. Thank you for listening to In Pursuit of Development with Professor Dan Bannock from the University of Oslo Center for Development and the Environment. Please email your questions, comments, and suggestions to inpursuitofdevelopment at gmail.com.